Welcome to the Expansive CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, founder of Expansive CEO and X Squared Wealth Planning. Buckle in as we explore how to create true prosperity and build a business and a life that expands beyond yourself and makes a dent in the universe. Welcome everyone to this episode of Investment Friday with Brad Haynes, the Chief Investment Officer of Juncture Wealth Strategies. And today we are going to go through some tender topics right now that we're going to be very sensitive to. Um, So we're going to talk about the effect on the global economy that the current crisis uh, between Israel and Gaza is um, creating in, you know, the financial markets. So I want to convey first that my heart goes out to all of the victims across the board and we are not politicizing the in this podcast any any way shape or form that the humanitarian crisis in the entire area is heartbreaking to me and so i wanted to make that very very clear from the start um, that as we talk about the impact to financial markets and to the global economy, that we are in no way diminishing what's happening in the region. So the the way that we will frame this discussion is how have conflicts similar to this in the past, affected the global markets because there there can be that doesn't mean there will be but there can be significant impacts depending on what pieces of the global economy are affected by you know certain regions in the world so i wanted to start there and brad how how are you how would you like to start um with this we spent a good you know 25 minutes actually talking about this before hitting the record button because I wanted to make sure that that the gravity of the situation, right, is being honored while also saying, okay, since this is a financially focused podcast, finance with heart, right? Both of these pieces are present. So we're holding all of those pieces together. The the heartbreak for humanity and the impact on the global economy and what that can look like in a portfolio. So Brad, let yeah, you take I mean, it over. I, wanted, I think I wanted to add my comments that, um, you know, my heart also goes out to all of the innocent vi- victims, um, you know, not just in this conflict, but, but many others, um, you know, it's, it's a terrible humanitarian uh, problem and it's it's very unfortunate that we have conflicts across the globe, um, but we do. And and unfortunately, you know, sometimes they affect the global economy, and they can impact us as consumers and investors, and as people in general. Um, so yes, I want to make sure that everybody understands the humanitarian impact far outweighs the financial part of it for mm-hmm. sure. Um, but because we are focused on investments and the economy in this podcast, um, we are going to, to kind of look at some of the impacts 
um, in those areas. So um, I want to make it a kind of an analogy. Um, so a lot of I've had this question a lot is, OK, you know, in Israel and Hamas are at war, how like it, it has frightened a lot of people, a lot of my clients, a lot of uh, friends and family members. It's frightened. And so they're coming to me and asking, well, how is that going to impact me or the or the, the world economy? Um, and I, I draw the analogy to Russia and Ukraine, where, you know, in beginning of 2022, we had a, a world superpower invade one of their neighbors. And from the get go, a couple things happened. One, agricultural commodities spiked up in price. Energy products, both natural gas and oil, spiked up in price in so much that it caused a little bit of an energy crisis in Europe, if we remember um, mm -hmm. last summer going into last winter, it, it really became a very big concern for the globe that that Europe would freeze um, during that winter. And so that, again, impacted everybody in the world, okay? Uh, specifically though, Europe. Um, and and it, it impacted the United States because it also helped drive part of our inflation, part of the current inflation battle that we've been fighting and that Jerome Powell and the Federal Open Market Committee at the Fed have been doing is trying to tamp down that inflation. Well, with the most recent conflict, it's in the Middle East. It's very near oil and natural gas producing, refining, and shipping areas. So that is going to have an impact. In fact, the price of oil is up a, quite a bit since October 7th, that Saturday. So it, there is a, um, a premium, if you will, on the price being put in to reflect the uncertainty of certain supplies of that, of that oil and of, of that natural gas. So it's it's important to understand that that is kind of the, the process is certain areas will be impacted around the globe. Um, for the most part, I believe all of those negative impacts are already priced in. Now, what's not priced in is any change in the status quo between in that conflict. So if, if the conflict widens out, um, if, if other parties start to get involved, that then changes the calculus of what's going to be impacted um, globally um, from an economic standpoint. At this point, it looks like it's going to be fairly localized um, and, and so not necessarily spread everywhere in the world. But um, so anyways, that's that's kind of um, the start. How's that? Yeah. So thank you um, for sharing those aspects because, um, the, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, again, that, you know, talking about that, that's still going on, right? Like it's, it hasn't ended. No. Um, so I think that's a really important piece to bring in as well, that, that it's been going on for how many months now? It's like, it'll be two years soon. Right. Yeah, it's over 600 days. It's like 602 or three days. Yeah. And so at the beginning of that crisis um, and during, yeah, during the first stages of it, 
Ukraine also provides a large amount of wheat for the region. Massive amount for for Africa and the region. Yeah. And so when you were talking about the food, you know, food commodities, that was a, a big basis of that. So, you know, when we think about wheat harvest, wheat harvest goes into so much of the other, you know, food products that we that we use that are made that are, you know, created for um, mass consumption. And so when a like one of the bread baskets, right, of the region is shut down that really caused a lot of ripple effects um, through that time with the commodities. And then like you're saying with the natural gas and oil, um, we didn't necessarily feel the natural gas issues that was felt by Europe pretty strongly. Um, But here in America, um, the, the gas or, you know, the oil, um, the gas prices at the, at the pump definitely reflected that, that premium. Right. Right. And so, and we've seen that over and over, right. Every other conflict in that region, whether it was um, Russia, since they have such large oil stores or, you know, other um, areas in the Middle East, if there are conflicts going on, oil reacts almost immediately, like you said, um, with how high the premium has gone so far, um, which then translates into, like you said, into inflation on the home front here. So when we are talking about inflation um and i know jerome powell just had another conference today right he had another press conference um what are we looking at because we've been talking it feels like almost incessantly um about (laughs) the fed trying to control inflation um over the last you know couple of years but especially you know looking at okay are we going to slow down rate hikes because inflation is starting to look like, oh, maybe it's tapered off. What is what is coming out now with regards to inflation now that we're kind of, you know, maybe seeing an uptick, especially with oil? Yeah. So that's that's the risk. What you just you nailed up, nailed the head. You nailed it on the head. Um, and that's one of the things that Jerome Powell addressed today is one. Um, you know, since you know, since the time of of the you know October seventh, oil has gone from you know the lower to mid eighties per barrel to over ninety dollars a barrel. So there has been an impact. You know, it's gone up in value to reflect the increased uncertainty of those of those oil supplies. Well, that is going to that's going to flow through to the consumer gas prices, gasoline prices, eventually, right? In the next couple of weeks, we're going to start to see tick ups. And that is where I think Jerome Powell is trying to be very sensitive uh, to future inflation. Um, right now, he says, as it stands today, it looks like a lot of the longer term bond yields that have gone up over the last couple of months have done a lot of the work for tightening conditions. So the Fed may be able to pause. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing. However, if if I'm forecasting out and I'm looking at, you know, oil prices going up, I'm looking at some other things, we could have a situation where we have a slowing economy and yet still have twice as much inflation as as the target. Mm. 
So right now, inflation is 3.8% in the U.S. CPI, Consumer Price Index, and their target, the, the Federal Reserve's target is 2%. So they need to tamp down on that. So higher gasoline prices is going to fight against that for a little bit. So I'm hopefully, hopefully and hoping that they don't over-tighten policy just because of a small premium in oil prices. Okay. And the other thing that you had mentioned um, we were talking before the show was that um, so far, like global economy impact, we haven't seen a lot of other shifting other than the price of oil going up. Is that that correct? Okay. Yeah. So, so far, we haven't seen a lot of impact from the current Israeli-Hamas conflict or war, um, we haven't seen a lot of that flow through. Now, typically, and this is a very vast generalization, so I don't want anybody to misunderstand that, is conflicts are generally inflationary. um, Because what happens is governments then go, hey, we need to ramp up our, our production of weapons and ammunition and all of the different things that go into fighting fighting wars. And so a lot of times that can be very, very inflationary. Um, I don't think this one is, as long as it stays very small and very localized, I don't think that's going to have an impact on us. It, it might if, again, other, other players get involved and then the United States gets involved and then we need to, to fund that effort. Um, one of the reasons that we haven't seen a recession in 2023. Um, partially is because the fisc- the federal government has spent so much money the last 18 months on just in fiscal stimulus, you know, between incenting manufacturers to come back from abroad, to come back and, and to home, uh, put their manufacturing facilities in the United States. Um, whether it's the aid to Ukraine, where, we're having to tank, take tanks out of storage or take missiles out of storage, make sure they run correctly, and then ship them over there. A lot of that's, that's economic activity, and that's funded by the U.S. government. So that fiscal deficit is funding our fiscal stimulus, which has kept us from falling into, falling into recession up until now. Interesting. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And I don't think um, I had heard you frame it that way before. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's like. I hope that's a good way. <laughs> yeah. No, it it is. I think part of part of what we do here on the podcast is help people reframe what we've already seen. Right. So it's like, what's what's more context? And I think you just dropped in another piece of context um, that we haven't talked about before, which is you know really important in when we're looking again at how the global economy you know works together. Yes. What what pieces are we actually looking at if we're if we're talking about is a recession looming or should it, you know this um, actually this pretty much like tease up the question that we have from our listener, right? Like 
when we've been feeling this general like economic anxiety um, or malaise, and I'll read the question in just a second, why why we're not experiencing that recession. So there, there's like a disconnect, right? It feels yes. disjointed. So here, let me read it actually. Um, such a good question. So thank you, Bob from Huntsville uh, for sending in more awesome questions always. He was saying that data shows that the economy is doing okay. Exactly what we're just talking about, right? But why do consumers feel they're in a malaise? Does that have a bearing on the market? And then he goes on to say, you know, he doesn't necessarily think so since institutional investors control more of the market than, you know, individual investors. So I would break that into two pieces, actually. So the data showing that the economy is okay, but consumers feeling that, again, that anxiety malaise, and then how much control do individual investors have versus those institutional investors. And to clarify, when we talk about institutional investors, we're talking about the big investment banks, the um, you know the institutions that are controlling billions of dollars of assets, not just you know the individual portfolios of you know your grandparents in in their IRA, right? And Brad, you can speak to that since that's literally what you did for twenty years. Yeah, yeah. So again, Bob's question is very very good, and I'm gonna I'm definitely gonna split that into two things. First of all, I'm gonna I'm going to talk about one. I think uh, customers think that they're that they they have a general malaise because they go to the grocery store and they go out to eat a lot. And every time they go out to eat, you know, instead of it being fifteen dollars for lunch, it's now thirty. Or you know, it, instead of of going to the pump and you filled it up for fifty dollars before, now it's seventy five eighty. That is their general everyday experience. Yeah. They're they're seeing they're going to the grocery store and instead of being $100 it's $150. And for a family that's trying to to make things work, that's a tough environment to be in. Um however, one of the reasons the economy is doing so well are twofold. One, jobs have remained very strong. We've talked a little bit about this. I put out a chart um, that that maps um, the job openings in the United States per unemployed person. So for every person who's looking for a job in the United States, how many jobs are available? That ratio is really uh, critical, and the Fed really watches that to determine how strong the labor market is. And up until now, it's been very, very, very strong. And so when the consumer feels like they can easily get a job and that job will pay them the same or more than their current employment, it makes them feel safe. And that that feeling that safety, feeling that um, a little bit higher income potential causes them to spend money. And when they spend money, Again, the consumer spending is two-thirds of the U.S. economy. It propels us forward. So if you take that and you combine it with the, the, the amount of uh, spending that the U.S. government has been doing, which totals about 6% of GDP right now, so where it's a pretty big deficit, that's, that we're talking some big money, those two engines 
together have driven, have kept us uh, above that recessionary line. Now, what I would say is things are indicating that the consumer is possibly slowing and in certain areas starting to crack a little, meaning consumer spending is starting to slow down. We're starting to see um, higher bankruptcies. We're starting to see higher foreclosures on homes. We're starting to very, they're coming off very, very low levels. So I'm not trying to, when people hear the word foreclosure, they may go back to 2008, 2009 in their mind. That is not what I'm referring to. What I'm referring to is these are extraordinarily low levels that they're starting to turn up because credit cards have gone from an average of 14% credit card rate to now it's an average of 22. Hmm. You've added a lot of balance to your credit cards, uh, us, U.S. consumer collectively over the last year, year and a half. And so that is starting to take more of that excess income out of uh, the consumer spending. So if you combine that with, again, the consumer price, the inflation that we've seen, um, that tends to get clients down or, or consumers down a little bit. And how that impacts their spending is going to be real critical here in the fourth quarter. Hmm. Okay. And so that's addressing that first part of the question, right? The malaise versus mm-hmm. the data. Um, what about the second aspect? So the second aspect is a great question, and he is right and he's wrong. Bob, you're right and you're wrong. Good job. Here we go. Playing (laughs) all sides. Yeah, playing all sides. So he is correct in that 80% of the trading on Wall Street is institutions. So on any daily basis, any hour, most of the trading is done by institutions, which do control that marketplace. However... Institutional investors are um, investing for individuals and households, generally speaking. So, for example, I'm going to use an example. I was I have a friend who uh, manages money for an insurance company. Okay, well, that's a big institutional investor. But that insurance company has policyholders that own the company. So it's a mutualized company. So. It, it, it effectively goes down to the, to, the, to the individual that owns that institutional investor. And that institutional investor has a very strict mandate as to how to manage that money. And as long as they, they comply with that, they're fine. Um, so yes, institutions do control the trading, um, but they do not control the outcomes, i.e. the returns of the investments. Um, and they don't control necessarily the, the the timing over a long period of time. They do in the very short term, though. Interesting. And then, so that twenty percent that would be, um, would that include rather? I'll turn that into a question. Does that include, you know, all of the people with, um, you know, e trade accounts or you know self-directed investments, Robinhood, all of those pieces, how big of a piece of the market movement, we'll say, volatility comes from that 20% of individual investors? So, um, well, it's 20%, right? But (laughs) yeah, not very much. I I mean, 20% of it, 
However, I'm going to make a huge caveat to that because in certain markets, in certain stocks, and depending on certain times, they can influence it all. So for example, if you go back to 2020, 2021, when everybody had nothing to do, and so and we had government checks coming in, we were trading a lot of meme stocks, right? And that was almost 100% exclusively retail, individual stock trading at Robinhood, Schwab, TD Ameritrade, E-Trade, all of the different areas, you know, individual self-directed, those meme stocks, as they were highlighted in, in, in Reddit, though, almost 100% of the movement was de determined by those, by the retail investors. Um, so, and, and good for them. But generally speaking, generally speaking, uh, it's only about 20%. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because as, you know, uh, I'm the chief investment officer for Juncture Wealth Strategies, um, based in Scottsdale, Arizona, and we are an institutional investor. Okay. Right. Yeah. But we invest for people. Every single account has one or more people attached to it that we invest for. So we would never want to do anything to invest contrary to a client or we want to make sure we're doing what they expect and what they desire. So that is a really good way to reframe that. Yeah. That, uh, you know, it's not the um, hundred billion dollar investment bank. Right. Um, but well, one of the pieces actually I would like to highlight about juncture at this moment is that you, we are able to use, those like tools um, that bigger institutions have at their disposal, we know how to use those and can use those in the individual investment portfolio, right? So it's taking those institutional um, tools, processes, and being able to then, you know, utilize them on the individual investor level because we have good systems and practices in place um, in that way. So- yeah, that's an interesting point that, you know, when I'm, when I'm talking to people, I'll, I'll highlight that actually, that it's not, it's having those institutional resources, um, but being able to be more nimble as, Absolutely. as things happen. We are, we are much, <laughs> when I worked for a very large bank managing a lot of money for, uh, for the bank, um, we could not be nimble. In fact, we did a study to determine how long it took to implement a change in the portfolio. And it took anywhere from nine to 18 months, depending. Well, that's not very nimble. Right. So you have to invest, like those large, very, very large institutions have to invest um, in kind of a, a, a boring, not a boring, but it's, it's just kind of a long term, just ride it out, just because they can't be nimble. There's right. too much money associated with them. In fact, uh, they had 32 different mutual funds for their large cap exposure that they could use, that, that, that advisors could use. Well, why do you have 32 since 32 is 
perform. I mean, you can't, the top one's not, it, the 32 32nd one is not as good as a top one. But you do that because if you have $100 billion that you're going to invest in that area, you will own the mutual funds. So you need to have enough where you don't own too much of one mutual fund. So it's, you know, large institutions have a lot of struggle with, with, with implementation, whereas, you know, smaller institutions like us, we can be very nimble and we can apply cutting edge technologies to these problems. Yeah. All right. Yeah. There was, I just love talking about that. Honestly. Um, I think it's a really, um, a defining factor. Um, that's really different. So yeah, thank you for what you You're do. Welcome. Um, talking about, um, actually like performance and we're not specifically talking about performance, but I know we wanted to go into this direction. We mentioned it a little bit earlier talking about Jay Powell, um, and interest rates, but let's, let's move there. Let's, let's go into that spot. Um, so that we can talk a little bit more about how interest rates yields have continued to rise and what that's starting to do to, you know, the expected or needed rather um, return for equities. Okay. That's a great, it's a great segue. So I know a lot of people we've talked about interest rates coming up, you know, five and a quarter percent over the last 18 months. That's a big change in interest rates. And so as, as just a by way of education, I'm going to use a few terms here. Um, one is interest rates are very, very short term. Okay. So interest rates are what sets um, the coupon rate on a bond. So for example, if a bond is issued today, it's going to have around a five and a quarter percent coupon. All right. However, um, there's longer term bonds out there and there's bonds that mature one, three, five, 10 years out, 20 years, 30 years from now that are being issued. So yields are basically the rate of return that those bonds are offering. And so there's something called the yield curve where it's a graph that shows you the yield that's being offered for investment across the range of maturities from zero, from zero years or a couple of months all the way to 30 years. And generally it's upward sloping, meaning the short-term interest rates or yields being offered are very low relative to the 30 year, 20 to 30 year to compensate you for locking your money up for that long. That's, we call a term premium. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now we haven't had that for a while. We've had an inverted yield curve where the short-term interest rates were very, very high. Okay. Five and a quarter to five and a half percent, but the longer term yields were lower. And I'll give you an example. The 10 year treasury year, the 10 year treasury, 10 years, you lock it up. Um, three months ago, it was 3.8%. Okay. So much lower than the interest rate. Okay. Of five and a quarter percent. So it was downward sloping. Well, that same yield today is basically 5%. So it's 
So in three months, we have come up 1.2%. So that adjustment in yield happens for a couple of reasons. One, the, the treasury has to raise their yields to entice people to buy them and to lock it up for that long. Okay. And secondly, uh, other investors have stepped away from the market, meaning they have, uh, you know, the Chinese central bank hasn't been buying nearly as much of the U.S. Treasury as they have in the past. All right. They're struggling in their economy. They have to defend the yuan, And so they're selling off some of those treasuries and, and, and defending the yuan with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so as, as, as we need to find that equi- equilibrium, that those longer term yields are coming up to entice people like you and I to commit our money longer term. And those yields, 5% locked in for, for 10 years, when expected inflation is about two, is is not a bad return. That's actually a really good return right now. Mm-hmm. So and the the thing that I wanted to mention too is that when we when we hear um, you know it went from three point eight percent yield three months ago up to about five, and that's a one point two percentage points, right? We can we can frame it that way, but we can also frame it as that was a 31.5% increase. Correct. And that's, yeah, you frame it that way, like, oh, that's a lot. Like, that's it a big increase. It hasn't moved that much um, in quite a long time. And so, the and the other aspect, so when we talk about treasuries um, or corporate bonds even, right, like every type of bond has a different tax treatment uh, applied to it. And so the other space that we look at that I actually wanted you to talk about before we move on are municipal bonds, because in that space, um, when the yields are high on muni bonds, as they're called, uh, that can really draw people's attention away from equities, because with an equity, you're going to likely, if it's in a taxable account, you're going to pay taxes on the growth, right? Or the dividend. Um, if it's a dividend paying stock, so you're going to pay capital gains on the growth and, uh, federal taxes on the dividend income, but on a muni bond, if you are in the state of residence, right, there are lots of rules around it, but muni bonds can be tax-free. Absolutely. And so So that's a really powerful tool when the interest rates are high and you're getting a tax-free return. Yeah. I'm going to give you an example. I, uh, I was moving with a client yesterday morning. And we were talking, we were discussing, um, you know, we've, we've held on to stock for, for a long time, actually more than he would like, cause he's more conservative. Um, we've held on to some stock. And so with yields being this high, we've started looking at adding to his bond portfolio and we're so, and we're doing so with some uni bonds. And, you know, if you're looking at a 10 year muni bond, and let's say you're in the 35% combined tax bracket. So between federal, state, and local taxes, um, you know, that was like, he, he, he can get like an eight and a half, just under an eight and a half percent, what we call tax equivalent yield. It's the yield that we gross up 
to say, okay, if you're going to get a taxable bond, you have to get 8.45% or better to make the same amount, right? Mm -hmm. So that tax equivalent yield for him at 8.4344% for a double A, very high credit quality, municipal bond, tax-free interest for him made a lot of sense. Mm. Yeah, that's crazy to hear just from the perspective of it's been so many years <laughs> since that was the case, right? Yes. Like, yes is it like yes. 15? Um, uh, since, or 20, yeah. Yeah, since that has been the case. Um, so yeah, it's absolutely a place to have a conversation. Yeah, right? I mean, it, it, if I was a high net worth investor, and let's say I am, um, you know, retired or I'm looking for retirement. I mean, it's real difficult for me to justify taking equity risk for a large portion of my portfolio when I can get almost eight and a half percent tax equivalent yield. I mean, that is, it, it's very difficult. You know, you, you have to, you know, and, and again, you don't want to put 100% of your money in bonds. You want to have some growth assets to keep pace with inflation, obviously. But it, as more and more conservative to moderate investors see these yields come up to areas where they become tempting, you're going to have people selling off on the margin some of their equity holdings and purchasing some fixed income and locking it in for five to 10 years. And, uh, and that's a that's a I think it's a good thing. I think it's healthy. I think it it allows clients to more um, accurate accurately um, buffer their portfolios with fixed income. One of the things that I've heard a lot about is why fixed income the indices are going down so much. Um, so, for example, if you look at the long term. 20 plus year treasury yield or treasury ETF, it's down almost more, it's a little over 50% over the last two years. Yikes. Okay? That's big. That, that sounds bad, right? When you that, hear that, you're like, oh, that sounds terrible. Why would I invest in that? Yeah, it sounds terrible, but it's because we started at such low interest rates and they've gone up. Okay. Now, the higher interest rates go, the higher yields go the more of a, of a buffer fixed income or bonds can be. At, when bonds are paying 1%, there's not a lot of buffer room there. But at 5 6 7 8%, there's a lot of buffer there. And so if they start to take on their safety, kind of the ballast in the, in the portfolio type um, duty, and they do a very, very good job over time to do that. The other, and this could probably be a full topic on its own. Um, so maybe we talk about this next week, but um, when we talk about bonds, the bond indices, right? The Barclays Ag, uh, which is the Barclays aggregate um, uh, that tells us how bonds are moving, right? When yields and interest rates are rising, the price of currently existing bonds the price to purchase those bonds goes down. And so that's why the indices are down 
is because if you were to buy that bond or try to sell rather sell that bond to someone else, you're going to have to sell it for less, you know, pennies on the dollar because it's not getting the same yield. Like, why would I buy your bond at full price when I can go get a brand new bond that's going to pay me way more interest? Right. Um, So when we see those types, like the bond ETFs, for example, or, um, you know, anything that follows the bonds that can, in a rising interest rate environment, yeah, your existing bonds might be having issues. If your whole point was not to buy a bond and hold it to maturity. Correct. So I wanted to open up that difference because, you know, if, if someone's looking, say you have, because where I came from, um, we would buy bond mutual funds in people's portfolios and those would fluctuate with these market conditions, right? So as interest rates are rising, the bond mutual funds would be dropping in price and you'd be like, these are not helping my portfolio. They're not protecting anything um, in that type of environment. But that's a very different way to utilize bonds in a portfolio than if you're able to buy a specific bond that meets your criteria, right? Having very strong criteria for what you need and say you purchase a 10-year bond and you plan to hold it from now until 10 years from now. Because in that case, it doesn't matter. If you get a 6, 6% uh, coupon bond and you hold it for all 10 years, it could be you know worth more, worth less, more, and, and fluctuate all over the map with its bond value, quote unquote. But you are going to get your full money back at the end of 10 years if you hold it for the entire time, plus the 6% coupon that you got every year. Yep. Right. So that's when we're talking about bonds in particular, you know, there's there, make sure that you understand if you're looking at your own portfolio, understand the difference in your portfolio. If you have a mutual fund or an ETF, you know, that's going to fluctuate in value, or if you're holding a bond and your purpose is to hold it to maturity. Do you want to expand yeah. on that at all? Yeah, no, I think that's and I think that's an important distinction. Um, you know, at Juncture, we really prefer to buy individual bonds for our fixed income allocations, but we understand that not everybody can do that in a diversified manner. So, but when they can, we like to to have that protection because the day we purchase that bond, I know what their return is going to be, the minimum return they're going to get, as long as the issuer does not default. Okay. And, and we, we do a really good job managing the credit quality on a tight basis. So I'm not necessarily too concerned about them, them defaulting, but if you, you lock in that contract, you know, the maturity date, you know, when you're getting your money back and then you know what months you're going to get paid. And it's great. It's great for certainty of income and for pres- preservation of capital. And uh, like I said earlier, it's also a great ballast for the portfolio for when we go through difficult equity markets. Um, so generally bonds go up in price when equities have problems. And so it, it can really offset a lot of that downside. Whereas the past I should say number of years, but a long time, past couple of decades, 
interest rates have been so low that you haven't they haven't been able to to become that ballast. They've actually become more of a of a, a problem area because they've actually amplified some of the volatility as we saw in 2022. Mm, okay. Well, I I so appreciate this discussion because I mean not only um listeners know I'm uh, we do this, the expansive CEO podcast, and I get to talk to all kinds of interesting people, but I'm also a certified financial planner, obviously, um, in X squared wealth planning. And so my clients, right? Like these discussions like directly affect the, my clients that I work with, um, as well. And so this is, you know, I love that we get to have these discussions and then I know I can literally take the implementation back to my clients if it's appropriate um and any other you know financial professionals that are listening which totally welcome everyone come and listen because we've got some good things to say right um take this information and go back and and review review with your clients and review your portfolios and review how you are um looking at risk and how you're measuring it so very important very, very. So was there anything else that we needed to hit on today? I feel like we, we went through a lot, but I wanted to just make sure. We, we did go through a lot. Um, no, I think we touched on every point pretty, pretty well. So. Okay. Well, for our listeners, if you have any questions, any questions coming up at all around, you know, um, whatever's happening in the global economy, in your personal economy, you know, like what you are feeling and seeing um, and want to hear us expand on it, please send your questions. We love to hear from you. Um, we'll talk about it on the air and we'll continue to talk about more things um, as well. So I think one of the pieces we wanted to talk about um, in the near future is how do we define risk? What are the ways that we talk about risk differently um, than your traditional planning firms um, and investment houses? So really diving into what that means. So if you have any questions coming up, don't hesitate to contact us. And I hope you have an awesome week. Thanks for being here, Brad. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and be sure to like and subscribe. And again, if anything resonated with you from this episode, I would love to hear from you. Email me at Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, at expansiveceo.com and tell me about it. And if you're ready for your greatest expansion, you can find ways to work with me at expansiveceo.com and at xsquaredwealthplanning.com. That's X, the numeral two, wealthplanning.com. So until next time, remember that there is enough, you are enough, and your birthright in this lifetime is to be expansive.